The Nehemiah Project Podcast, where we replace hopelessness with hope. Well, we're back on our podcast series where we are walking through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're looking at just the tremendous sovereignty of God as he continually preserves and provides for his people who are coming back from the exile in Babylon. And if you've been following the last few podcast episodes as we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah and the first half of Ezra, man, I hope that you've just enjoyed yourself because I certainly have. It has been an incredible time watching the promises of God made by the prophets of God hundreds of years before the exile come to full fruition. And we've really learned a lot as we've been walking through these books. We've learned that God is faithful, that he is sovereign, that he is omniscient, that he is omnipotent. He knows everything. He has the ability to do anything that he desires to do. And ultimately, history is the display of his will being worked out through his creation. And so today, we're going to be looking at the second half of the book of Ezra, starting in chapter 7. And this chronicles for us, the readers, the second return of the Israelites from exile. And uh, we're going to meet a character named Ezra today. And uh, before we get into that, I'd like to just introduce our guest. We've got with us the Director of Congregational Care from the Field Church, Mr. Bo Whitmore. Bo, how you doing, bud? I'm doing well, Mike, and I'm just so happy to be on this podcast with you today. I really appreciate you having me. Well, I appreciate you just jumping in. We know uh, that Chad's real busy right now with his doctoral uh, program at Southern, and uh, he told me yesterday, he's like, I just forgot that we're going to, I'm not going to be able to do the podcast tomorrow. Yeah. And I was like, that's fine, man. I can go solo. Or you know what? I can ask Bo if he wants to jump in. And so I thank you just for jumping in. Hey, you praise know, God. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Last minute. And so without further ado, let's get into Ezra chapter 7. Now, before we start to read the text, um, I want to just give you, the listener, some information on this man, Ezra. Now, his name literally means Yahweh or God is my help. And it's interesting because the name Nehemiah, if you'll remember, meant Yahweh is my comforter, right? And Nehemiah was seen as the courageous comforter that helps his people respond to adversity. And Ezra comes into the scene here as the helper of Israel. He comes into the scene where where we've got the people who have been led into the land by Zerubbabel and Yeshua, the governor and high priest of the small little portion of the Israelites that are coming back into the land. And you'll remember that small portion was prophesied about in Jeremiah 24. If you don't know Mm -hmm. what I'm talking about, I don't have time to go over it again. So go back and listen to last week's episode. But Ezra is coming into the picture now in the book that has his name as a help to the people of God to reestablish Yahweh worship. And furthermore, not only just to establish the temple worship, but also to establish the teaching ministry in the land. Because basically what has happened to the people of God is that they have forgotten their God. Mm. They were uh, judged by the Lord and sent out of the promised land because they had really engaged in what we refer to, Bo, as syncretistic worship. Mm. Syncretistic worship simply means the blending of the worship of Yahweh uh, with the blending of the worship of pagan gods, mm. right? We certainly see that today in our culture, don't yeah, we? Sure, sure. I, I hear it all the time. Like uh, people have these these religions, as well, like they're all paths to heaven, you right? Know? Like, uh, hey, you have your path to heaven, I have my path to heaven, uh, but we're all getting there, right? That's right. What, that's what it's popular to believe these days. Absolutely, absolutely. And it and we find that unfortunately in the church, where mm. you know people may not say that explicitly. But the way that they evangelize people, right? How they speak about the um, the love of God mm. um, can certainly leave in the mind of the listener. Well, man, maybe maybe Jesus doesn't actually demand my exclusive worship. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'm a maybe I can just sort of add Jesus to my life, and I'll get all the blessings of God, but I won't actually have to worship God the way that He explicitly demands in his word to be worshiped, right? Mm. 
And so we do see forms of syncretism popping up, and there's a long history of that going all the way back to even God's chosen Old Testament people. Mm. And so Ezra is a priest. Uh, he is a, is a uh, descendant of a long line of priests. Um, and he is, as verse 6 says in chapter 7, a scribe as well, who is skilled in the law of Moses. And so Ezra is really a, a priest teacher, really like in today's vernacular, he'd be a pastor teacher, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so he, verse 10 in chapter 7 says that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to practice it and to teach his statutes and judgments in Israel. And so we can see that the people of God, under the guidance and leadership of Zerubbabel and Yeshua in the first half of Ezra, have, let, have been led into the promised land. We ended last week's podcast with a celebration of the Passover, the completion of the temple in the face of adversity. And now we get introduced to Ezra, who's going to come help reestablish the teaching ministry amongst the people of God. And one more final note just on Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book in the ancient Hebrew and Greek Old Testament. And they basically complete one another. Uh, Ezra's story is continued in Nehemiah chapter 8 through 10, which we're actually going to do for next week's podcast episode. But both of these books are necessary to understand the history of Israel. And like I've mentioned even on last week's podcast, if it weren't for this inspired record of the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, we would have really no inspired evidence of what actually happened over this 100-year period. Mm. And so we are so thankful for this book in particular and the book of Nehemiah because without these books and even the book of Esther, we would just simply not have an inspired record of God's awesome sovereignty put on display for us. And so with that, let's get into the introduction here of today's podcast. I'll read verses 1 through 26 of Ezra, uh, and let's get introduced to um, this man in chapter 7, verses 1 through 26. And Bo, we're just going to stop a couple of times and make some observations and kind of go off the cuff here. Sounds great. So here we go. If you're following along at home, why don't you open up your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7, starting at verse 1. It says, now after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, and the son of Hilkiah. Now we'll stop right there because what we have to understand is that we are looking at a portion in uh, chronological history that is occurring 57 years after chapter 6, verse 22. We have a 57-year difference. Now, we just read from one sentence to the next, and we go, oh, it's just flowing. Mm -hmm. But 57 years has passed. That's like a whole lifetime, right? And so what we're looking at then is a a, uh, record of the second return of the Israelites, like we've mentioned. And it happens during the reign of King Artaxerxes. Now, This is a a very important man in the overall um, story of God's redemption because if you go to Daniel chapter 9, I'm just going to bring this. I wasn't planning on bringing this in, Bo, but but sometimes we just got to do these kinds of things. let's do it. (laughs) Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 um, are, by some estimates and some theologians, the backbone of all of the Old Testament prophecy and future prophecy that ends up in the book of Revelation. And it's famously referred to as Daniel's 70 weeks, okay? Now, what this has to do with Artaxerxes is going to become very evident to you in just one second. Let me read verses 24 and 25. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks have been determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy of holies. So you are to know and have insight that from the going out of a word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And it, referring to Jerusalem, will be restored and rebuilt with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So notice, listener, 
from the going out of a word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be a set amount of time. Now, that going out of that word happened through the mouth of King Artaxerxes. Mm. If we go to Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah chapter 2, it says this in the first, uh, well, really, the first 10 verses describe this entire thing, but let's just read a few verses. It says, Now it happened in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And so the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you, have, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? Thus, the king begins the prophecy that Daniel made about the word going out to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Listen to the rest of what he says. Nehemiah then says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. It's like the king said, well, what do you want? And then he just throws in a shotgun prayer. And then he responds to the king and says in verse five of chapter two, if it is good for the king and if your servant is good before you, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me with the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? And so it was good to the king to send me and I gave him a set time. Mm. So that is in 445 BC. That is 13 years later than where we are right now in chapter 7, verse 1 of the book of Ezra. And so Artaxerxes then fulfills Daniel's 70-week prophecy in part. And without King Artaxerxes, we would not uh, have the coming of Messiah. We would not have the building of Jerusalem. We wouldn't have Jesus. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's literally how important this is. Now, one more amazing fact about King Artaxerxes. You know who King Artaxerxes' stepmother was? It was Queen Esther. Mm. Queen Esther was the stepmother of King Artaxerxes. Now, think about the story of, es- of Ezra. Or, I'm sorry, of Esther. Mm. What, what did uh, Haman want to do to all the Jews? He wanted to kill them, right? He wanted to wipe yeah, them out, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. That includes Esther, who was a Jew. Mm-hmm. Now, King Artaxerxes is a pagan, right? He, he could care less about the Jews, right? If it weren't for God's sovereign hand placing Esther in the position to replace Queen Vashti, which if you're familiar with Esther, you'll know what I'm talking about, then King Artaxerxes may not have been as fond of the man Nehemiah. Therefore... Right. He may have actually executed Nehemiah for being sad in his presence, which was very common when cupbearers were sad. The kings usually thought, why is my cupbearer sad? Does he know what's in the drink and food I'm about to eat, right? Right, right. So all of that is background information just that's bound up just in the name King Artaxerxes. And this is how we see God's sovereign hand on display by putting all these pieces together. So continuing on then in chapter 7 of Ezra, I'm not going to read every section here. I'll just paraphrase. The uh, verses 2 through 5 just give you the genealogy, which show you that Ezra indeed was the son of Aaron, the chief priest. And this is the Aaron, the high priest of the book of Exodus, Mm. Moses' brother. So Ezra has some uh, royal almost Mm. (laughs) lineage, right? Now, verse 6 says that this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a uh, scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given him. And the king granted him all that he had requested. Notice this, because of the hand of Yahweh, his God, that was upon him. Now, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 21. If you're at home, turn to Proverbs chapter 21. And let's look at what the first verse in Proverbs has to say about what we've just read. It says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he pleases. Now, Bo, what does that mean? I mean, that means that uh, God is sovereign over everybody, even the highest, the highest powers that we as man acknowledge, uh, governments, kings, 
monarchs, they're, they all are worked into God's plan. Amen. Yeah. Just skip down to Ezra chapter 7, verse uh, 12 really quick. Let's just look at how Artaxerxes refers to himself. What does that say, Bo? King of kings. <laughs> I think yeah, that yeah. Proverbs 21.1 might have something to say yeah. about that title there, Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes does hold himself in high regard. He sure does. <laughs> but we know that the capital K, King of Kings, is truly the one who is the sovereign over all of the earth. Amen. And that's what verse 6 is saying. The king granted Ezra all that he requested because the hand of Yahweh as God was mm. upon him. Continuing on, it says, And some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers, etc., etc., went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. This is how we know the year that we're at. We're at 458 B.C. because we've been tracking this timeline ever since the proclamation of Cyrus back in chapter 1 of Ezra, which occurred in 537 B.C. And so verse 8 says that they all came to Jerusalem in the fifth month which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first month of the for on the first of the first month he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to practice it, and to teach his statute and judgment in Israel. So we have four months of travel time that occur there, but what are some other observations or comments, Bo, that maybe you have here just on these first 10 verses as we get introduced to this person, Ezra? Well, for me, um, verse 10 really sticks out um, because he set his heart to study the law of Yahweh. I mean, I'm already thinking about Psalm 1. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this is something that is consistent throughout the Word of God. I mm -hmm. mean, know what my Word says, then practice it. Be obedient to it. And, you know, and you see Ezra doing that and, and he's going to, as we go through and you're going to get to in a minute, he's going to lead the people in that way. But I mean, you know, studying God's word, knowing God's word, that's, that's not just the job of a pastor right there. I mean, that's as right. all of God's people, we need to study God's word, know it, be obedient to it. Amen. Amen. And I love that too. There's, there's really some encouragement there because let's think of the situation here for just a moment. Okay, Ezra is roughly 1,500 miles away. I'm looking at a map right now. He leaves Babylon, and I mean, he's roughly, let's say, between 1,000 and 1,500 miles away from where he has to go. Hmm. Now, we know, and we're going to see this explicitly stated in just a moment, that travel back then was very dangerous, hmm. okay? So, I mean, he's got a couple of options, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but suffice it to say at this point that, I mean, leaving a pretty comfortable life in Babylon to go back to your homeland that has been destroyed, I mean, that's not something the flesh is going to want to do. Not at all. Right? But what does the flesh normally want, right? Path of least resistance. That's right. Damn. It's like water, right? Mm -hmm. We want comfort. We want ease. We want security. We want stability. All of those things, Ezra is going to have to make a conscious decision to sacrifice if he wants to do what the will of God is, right. right? So for verse 10, as you brought up, this really speaks to the motivation behind a man who is willing to sacrifice those things. He set his heart to study the law of God and to practice it and to teach it, mm -hmm. right? It's a man of conviction. This is a man of absolute conviction, knows where he wants to go, knows what he needs to do to get there. And furthermore, <laughs> if you asked a non-believer how to accomplish this goal, Ezra, the non-believer would not say, you need to set your heart to study the law of God. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right? So true. Right? So true. He would say, well, no, you need to come up with a great pitch so you can really convince the king to give you what you need. You mm -hmm. need to really like woo this guy, right? Mm -hmm. No. Right. He set his heart on God. He set his heart on God. Mm -hmm. And so underlying that then is this belief, this faith, right? I mean, here we are in the Old Testament and we see faith being put on display. Faith is what makes someone willing to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow after Christ, yeah. right? I mean, Mike, that's exactly, as you were talking there, the exact thing I was thinking about how 
Uh, you know, Jesus commands us in both Matthew and Luke, you know, if you're going to follow after me, you have to take up your cross daily That's right. to do it. So, And Ezra had set his heart to do these things, right? He had set his heart to do these things. And as it explicitly says multiple times, the hand of Yahweh was upon him, right? That means that God was working through Ezra, right? We see the sovereign God mm-hmm. working through created means, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and this is another observation that I think we need to make at the outset. As I think what tends to occur when people uh, feel the call to ministry, for example, or um, are feeling maybe convicted because they're not, you know, uh, being faithful in family worship time, or they're not being faithful in giving, or they're not really standing up for the gospel and defending the gospel in those coffee room, you know, work break conversations, Mm -hmm. right? But they're feeling conviction. We have to remember that God is going to work through us as we do his will. It's not enough just to sit and pray necessarily, although there are instances where in his sovereignty he has worked very mightily just through prayer alone. But generally speaking, and the, the normative thing that we see in Scripture is prayer sets the heart on the path for righteous doing, right? That's right. We need to keep that in our minds because as we're going to see later on in today's podcast, that Ezra was definitely a man of prayer. Uh, He always was doing, uh, before he was doing anything, was making sure that his heart was right before the Lord, and he did that through prayer. He did that through prayer. Bodhi, you got something you want to add there? Oh, yeah. I I was just, as you were were talking there, I mean, what comes to mind is Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 10. You know, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's so good. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Mm. So let's make those observations at the outset because they're going to take on further significance as we get deeper into this, is that Ezra was a man of conviction who set his heart to study, to practice, and to teach. And he knew, he knew that he needed God He absolutely needed God to accomplish the things that he felt a strong desire to to do, to be involved in. And what is he doing? Well, he's going to lead the second uh, return back from exile. I mean, this is a very historically significant event. So let's continue on then. Let's look at the king's decree on behalf of Ezra in verses 11 through 28 of chapter 7 here. It says this, Now, this is the copy of the letter which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes to Israel. Now, this section that follows in the original text is written in Aramaic, Mm. which, which means that it is an actual copy of official government correspondence, Mm. right? This is uh, something that we shouldn't just gloss over because a lot of people think the Bible is just a bunch of cute fairy tale stories. Right. No. <laughs> and yeah, here we're looking absolutely at, not. <laughs> even as it says in verse 11, now this mm-hmm. is a copy of the letter, mm-hmm. right? And, but it's actually written in Aramaic, which was very much like English, right? In that English is kind of like the international language of business mm-hmm. today. During this time, Aramaic was like that. During Christ's time, it was more like Greek was like mm-hmm. that, right? So uh, that's why that's significant. So let's look at it in verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law, of the God of heaven, perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and Levites in my kingdom who freely offer to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For as much as you are sent from before the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem, according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and to bring the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. And all the silver and gold which you find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and of the priests, who offered willingly for the house of their God which is in Jerusalem, with this money, therefore, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and bring them near to the altar of the house of your God which is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So we'll stop there and make an observation. This is a record of King Artaxerxes clearly stipulating all of the materials necessary to rebuild the temple and then granting all of those materials to Ezra. That's what he's just done. Right. 
And one thing, Mike, I'm thinking about right now is the other time that God led his people out of Israel, or sorry, out of Egypt, yes. um, you know, with Moses. And I mean, we think about that. I think the difference in the two stories is, you know, Artaxerxes is letting this happen without having to go through a similar thing with the plagues and being beaten down to do yeah. it, right? So, but the 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 kind of the way it's going is the same. The people of Israel are leaving, and on their way out, people are just offering him them their yes. gold and silver, like here, take all of these riches with you while you go. Yes, and so it just it's so you know you you see God's sovereignty because like how many people would let this this class that they consider less than just walk out and say, here, take our riches with you right. so that you'll be well on your journey. You know, It's incredible. Yeah, it is. And I'm, I appreciate how you brought up the difference between King Artaxerxes and Pharaoh. Mm. Pharaoh, uh, as my, my buddy Evan would say, got hemmed up. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. He, he did. got jacked up. And so uh, Artaxerxes, thankfully for his own sake, didn't have to go through that. But... I want to just make the note that in verses 14 through 17 that I just read, we have basically a grant, right? Mm -hmm. A grant for everything that Ezra has uh, asked for and will need. Now, continuing on in verses 18 through uh, 20, we have an unrestricted grant that Ezra can uh, do with the remaining funds that he has. Listen, it says, And whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. Also, the utensils which are given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. The rest of the needs for the house of your God, which may fall upon you to provide, provide it for or from the royal treasury. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> so, okay, here's everything you've asked me for. If you need anything else, go ahead and take whatever it is you need out of the royal treasury. And, you know, Mike, I'm thinking about just a few moments ago while we were kind of in verses 8, 9, and 10, and you were talking about, well, you know, the plans that Ezra would make for this journey, you know, how he could talk to the king about what he needs, but no, he puts his faith in God, and like it says in Matthew 6, all these other things are provided for you. Yes, amen. That's a great observation. Mm -hmm. Let's continue because it gets even better. Look at this in verse 21. It says, So I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river, that's the Euphrates River, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven may ask of you, it shall be done with all diligence. Okay, Ezra, I'm going to give you all the materials necessary. I'm going to give you all the labor necessary. Wow. Now, check it out. It gets even better. He says, even up to 100 talents of silver, which a talent I think was... Uh, was it 75 tons or something like that? It was, it was an incredible amount. Yeah. I'll have yeah, to look that up. Yeah. I, I, let me just look it up real quick in the back of my Bible because I think I've mm -hmm. got a, um, uh, what, are they, what is it? What's the word I'm looking for here? A uh, record of the monetary units. Let's see, a talent approximately worth more than 15 years of a laborer's wages. Wow. So wow. up to 1,500 years worth of wages measured in silver. Wow. <laughs> That's the significance of what he's saying. Mm. Basically, more money than you know what to do with. And 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without written order. So basically, the floodgates of heaven, in terms of material prosperity, have been opened mm. up to this man, Ezra. And it gets even better. Because you know you can have all the material prosperity in the world, but your spiritual life could be quenched. Mm. Well, look what King Artaxerxes says next. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of the God of heaven, so that there will not be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. Mm -hmm. You know what that is? That's called religious freedom. Mm -hmm. He said, whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal. Mm -hmm. So that's... About as good as it gets, brother. I mean, great observation <laughs> there, Mike. I don't think I would have caught that one, brother. So yep. I'm, glad, I'm glad that you brought that up. Not only do they get all of the money, all of the materials, and all of the labor, they also get religious freedom. Mm. That's a wonderful thing. And furthermore, they Jerusalem becomes a tax-free zone. Listen to verse 24. It just keeps getting better. Mm. We also make known to you that it is not allowed to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, temple servants, or any other servant of the house of God. Mm. 
And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the Euphrates River, even all those who know the laws of your God. And to anyone who does not know the laws, you shall make them known. So Ezra is given the right to install what we would call a theonomic legal Mm. system. Verse 26, whoever will not do the law of your God and the law of your king, let it be done, or I'm sorry, the law of the king, let judgment be done to him with all diligence, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. So it basically is the best possible scenario that you can imagine. It does look that way. It does look that way indeed. (laughs) Imagine, listener, you set your heart to seek God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that is your utmost desire. You can't imagine anything better than that. It doesn't even matter what your life looks like. You just say, you know what? I don't care that my life may be falling apart at the moment. I don't care that maybe I've got some issues in my marriage that are causing some, some talks of even divorce. I don't care that, that my children are gone, have gone wayward. I don't care what's going on. I'm going to stop feeling sorry for myself, and I'm going to set my heart to seek after God. Imagine what God can do through you and in you. I mean, we have a record here that we have a man named Ezra who did that, who set his heart to study, to do, and to teach the law of God. And then God opened up the floodgates of heaven in order to accomplish God's will through him. Now, am I saying that this is going to happen to you as exactly as it happened to Ezra? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that if you seek the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you are resolved to do that, man, oh man, you will be blessed with all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And there's nothing better than that. Nothing better at all, Mike. And as you were just reading that, what came to mind, kind of in my own reading right now, I'm reading 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 says this, And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver Mm. and gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Mm. And, you know, what that makes me kind of think of is, is, you know, God's providing Ezra with all of the, and the people with all of these riches right now, but the true richness, if you will, the true wealth comes from your relationship with God, the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah. I mean, it's just incredible to stop and think about what seems to us like a very small thing. Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to set my heart to study the Bible and I'm going to do that. And I'm, and I'm also going to set my heart to do the word of God, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus says, blessed are those who not only hear the word of God, but do Do it, it. right? Um, You know what's going to end up happening in your heart, listener? You're going to begin to see a very big God and your issues and your problems that maybe you're even coming to the Nehemiah Project for counseling for, they're going to become much smaller Mm -hmm. than you see them at this moment Mm -hmm. because God is that great. He is great. He is the sovereign one doesn't mean your problems are necessarily just going to go away but i think what would happen is you'll you be, you'll begin to see them rightly mm. you'll begin even to see something in your own heart that may be off that may be let's say out of step with the word of god and you know what god's granted us this thing called repentance right he he will grant you the opportunity to cast off a love of your own sin and cast yourself at the feet of christ who is ready, willing, and able to forgive and restore and redeem you and give you eternal life. I mean, that's, that is amazing. That is an, 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 just an indescribable gift. Amen. It, it truly is. And so we see that we have a man here in Ezra who's decided to do that. He set his heart with resolve and God opened up the floodgates of heaven so that God's will could be done. And let's look at the response of Ezra. Because this type of blessing leads to, 
it should lead to only one response in verses 27 and 28. But why don't you read verses 27 and 28 for us? Sure. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of Yahweh, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of Yahweh my God upon me, and I gathered chief men from Israel to go up with me. So he praises the Lord for putting this thing in the king's heart, and he praises the Lord for extending loving kindness, mercy to Ezra Mm -hmm. before the king so that they could do this great part of God's will. And man, it's just a magnificent thing. So that's like the really, really great and fun part of what we're reading today, right? right? I mean, everyone loves that, right? Yep. But now you got to come down off the mountaintop and get into the valley, right? Oh, yeah. And so in chapter 8, they begin. They set their face for the land of Jerusalem, and they go. And the first 20 verses are a genealogical record, which we're not going to get into. But you can go back and look at it. But I want to pick up in verse 21 because we have the first adversity, and it is traveling to the promised land. Like we mentioned, they are roughly between 1,000 and 1,500 miles away. Mm. It's going to take them four months to get to where they have to go. It's a long walk. It's a long walk. That's right. And it's a dangerous one at that. Mm. So let's see what happens here in verses 21 through 23, just to see the situation. It says, Then I called for a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a direct journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to ask from the king for a military force and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, The hand of our God is upon all those who seek him for their good, but his strength and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So he fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he was moved by our entreaty. This shows us the conviction of Ezra's heart to be a man that doesn't just say that he depends on God, but actually lives out those convictions, Mm. right? Notice again, if you were to ask, Uh, someone who is a non-believer, all right, Ezra, what should we do here to get ready for this big trip? They would say, well, Ezra, you know what you need to do? First of all, you got to make sure you save up enough food. Second of all, you got to make sure you save up enough money. Third of all, you got to make sure you got to get a military force to to escort you. I mean, look, you already got the king's bank account. Why don't you just buy the best stuff? Right. right? Why don't you guys travel in luxury, right? Mm -hmm. No, that's not what he says. What does he say in verse 22? I was ashamed to ask from the king for a military force and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the way. Now, why was he ashamed of that? Because of everything I just said. He said that the hand of, the God, the hand of our God is upon all those who seek him. Remember, listener, that's what we're trying to really illuminate today is that um, the man Ezra was a man of conviction who truly did walk the talk, truly did believe that God was able to do what he says he can do. Are you of that same conviction? I mean, it's easy to say yes, but I know that I've been tested, Bo. I don't know about you. Much easier to say yes. I was just thinking about how we, you know, we gather for worship on Sunday and we're very encouraged by the message that we hear and the teaching that we hear. And sometimes we walk out of the church building not thinking about, okay, how am I going to change in light of what's just been taught to me? Right. Or we just forget it that fast. You know, we, we hear it Sunday morning, by Monday morning. I mean, are we living it or right. are we not? You know, it's that faith in God. I mean, if you believe that the God of the Bible is who he says he is, mm-hmm. like right here in Ezra and just everywhere else in Scripture, I mean, do you live according to that? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah, and and notice what they did. They fasted and sought our God concerning this matter. And he was moved by our entreaty. And fasting is something that is, I think, largely misunderstood. Mm. Um, And I'm not saying that I fully understand everything the Bible has to say about fasting. But what I do gather, what seems to be what is normal, is that fasting is done um, in response to heavy conviction of sin generally, mm. uh, mourning the death of 
a loved one in the family, mourning um, a loss of maybe closeness of relationship with the Lord. Um, we see fasting happening in response to sin quite often throughout the Bible. And that's really the regular pattern that we see in, mm -hmm. in fasting. Do you have any other observations to make on that? Not really, Mike. One thing one thing I've noticed um, just in every time I fasted, and I think this is might be a way that, that the Lord has designed us, but um, every time I fasted, I've noticed that in the middle of the fasting, there there comes a point where your mind gets a little bit more sharpened. Uh -huh. Like, you know, there's this kind of just this more awareness or sharpness that comes to it through not having, um, you know, and I'm certainly not saying that you should just starve yourself or anything like right, that. Right. But sometime during the fasting, there is this point where where your mind just kind of sharpens a little bit. It kind of brings some things into focus and you're able to like really think kind of clearly. So, mm -hmm. and there might be something in that yes. uh, might be also the reason why they do it. Yeah, and that kind of is a good segue into what I was going to talk about concerning fasting and kind of how we see it done in pop Christianity today. Mm -hmm. You know, generally speaking, when does everyone do the fast? The beginning yeah. of the year. And it yeah. just so happens that it, you know, lines up real nicely with us setting our goals for, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I want to lose the weight. I want to make the money. I want to do this. I want to do that. And so I'm going to fast and seek God for these things. Mm -hmm. And that phrase, seek God for these things, um, you know, other than this portion of the Old Testament and maybe a, a handful of others, I don't see that as the normative reason for fasting. Mm. I don't think that it's necessarily wrong. I mean, clearly we see Ezra doing it, right? Mm. However, what I would like to caution our listener against is taking something that is holy, that is righteous, and that is good, and then using it and flipping it to then serve our fleshly desires. Certainly, right? certainly. Ezra and the people of God here are not doing something that their flesh is desiring to do. They are doing the will of God. Right. So they're not seeking God um, in accordance with their own New Year's resolutions. Right. And I think my, that's consistent with uh, Paul's teaching in Corinthians, you know, well, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, which I would assume that fasting would be in, uh, included in that, mm -hmm. you do all for the glory of God. That's right. Yeah. So I think we just need to make that known there because it's really easy for us to read, oh, well, there's my chapter verse to validate mm -hmm. my action. But again, remember the context is king. And so um, clearly Ezra and these people are um, leaving protection in Babylon. They're leaving uh, probably a well-established life, a well-established pattern of life that they have established over the past 70 years of being in Babylon. They're, they're, they're not doing too bad, really. Mm. Um, and certainly there's a lot of historical evidence that would back that up. They are seeking God because they need him to move or else they're going to get crushed and furthermore and i think this is probably the most important part god's name is going to be profaned mm. because notice what he says in verse 22 again i was ashamed to ask from the king for a military force and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the way because we said to the king the hand of our god is upon all those who seek him for their good mm. but his strength and his anger are against all those who forsake him Notice what how Ezra thinks about that ask from the king. Mm. He sees it as forsaking God. He sees it as, I actually don't think God will provide for what we need. Yep. And how easy is it for us to justify doing things that the world does and, and, and kind of just forgetting about all those things that we say about God's ability to provide for us? You know, you fill in the blank, listener, but I think we do this more often than not. We do. Agreed, Mike. I really agree with that. And um, and think about how I, I think one thing I'm getting from here from verse 22 is, you know, Ezra's displaying this great faith that he has in God to the king. Yeah. And he's saying, God is going to protect me. So how does that look if you say, well, God's going to protect me, but by the way, give me all this stuff to protect me, you right, know? So, right. yeah. And so someone might say in response to that, Bo, well, wouldn't you think that God's already provided all the necessary things through this king? Wouldn't you think that this military force would just be another thing that he provides, right? Here's the difference. Ezra was under conviction, mm. you see? Because there is that, this is somewhat of a gray area, right? Mm. 
what I'm getting at is the larger principle of how do we work out our faith with fear and trembling, but also how do we do it in a way that exercises the principles of wisdom and wise living? Mm. You see, mm. it, it is a very fine, it's a very narrow path, right? Mm. Because we don't want to presume upon God. We don't want to um, test God, right? I mean, clearly there's all throughout the scriptures, you shall not test the Lord your God, right? Mm. So for applications for our listeners and for us even, in our everyday lives, are, do you have certain convictions that when you think about, well, maybe, you know, should I took a loan out for this business plan? Should I, you know, should I, or should I just try to raise the money through my brothers and sisters in the Lord, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You got to, first of all, be seeking the Lord in prayer, right. be seeking the Lord through his word, be living righteously and holy by exercising his word in your life. And then you got to follow that conscience that's been informed by the word, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Really, that is the way. You know, Pastor Sam always says, you know, basically you got to live within the boundaries of God's law mm. and then you're free to do what you want, right? Right. So on the topic of, let's say, taking out a loan or something, yeah, the Bible says that the borrower is slave to the lender. That's the principle. Mm. Okay, do I want to be enslaved to this particular lender, right? right. Do I have a, a, a biblically faithful way to pay off this loan, right? Mm. Have, I, have I counted the cost? Like, those are the wise principles that if we work through our business plan, and this is just one example, and we get to the end of it and we're still under heavy conviction that no, God's going to provide this another way. Right. Then we then we leave the business, we leave it there. Right, right, yeah. And uh, your conscience testifying to you. Um, you know, one thing that uh, John MacArthur says that I have always kind of held in my mind is if you're following the will of God, then... Everything else you want to do, you just do it because you're following the will That's of right. God. You know, we all look through Scripture about the will of God, and and God's will, He doesn't say in Scripture, "Well, this is the job I want you to have, or this is the person I want you to marry, or this is the place that I want you to live." The will of God is that you would, you know, just summing up kind of all these different Scriptures, is that you would be holy, mm -hmm. right? And then after that, hey, we do what we want. We live a holy life according to what God has has taught us through His Word, and the rest. Um, you know, we can do with what we want. Like, um, for instance, uh, God providing for Ezra right here. You know, we, we, we could say that, oh, well, if God's going to provide for me, maybe I should just quit my job and not work, and right. God will just give me everything that I need to survive, right? It's like, no, God is providing for you by giving you your job. That's I mean, right. it's very biblical that God expects his people to work. Right, so, right, and right. You know. Absolutely. But I just wanted to stop there and park it there for a little bit because those are fasting and then also acting in accordance with your convictions that are based on the will, the will of God. Those are very important life principles. You know, we need to remember those types of things. So let's look at the response then in verses 24 through 32. It says this, then I set apart 12 of the leading priests and he goes on to list all their names out. And then he says, I weighed out to them the silver gold utensils and contribution for the house of our God which the king and his counselors and his priests and all Israel present there had offered, or present there had offered. And he goes on to list how he weighs out all the gold and silver. And it's a tremendous amount of resources that the Lord had provided here. And he charges those Levites and those priests and those officials with making sure that they don't abuse uh, this responsibility that they've been given by the Lord. In other words, that they are that they remember that they're holy to the Lord, and that what they have in their hands, namely the silver and gold utensils, are also holy to the Lord. And so, take the utmost care in handling these things, he says. And then in verse thirty-one, it says, "Then we set out from the river Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was upon us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. And thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there for three days." And so those convictions that Ezra had were right, and God came through. He protected them. He provided for all their needs while they were on the road for those four months. And then they get to Israel, and they place all of those silver and gold utensils in the temple, and verses 33 through 36 describe that for us. And then they have a time of worship where the exiles bring forth burnt offerings, and they they bring him to the God of Israel and they sacrifice and they, they worship the God of heaven together. And then in chapter nine and all the way to the end of the book, we see the second adversity, which is the primary adversity of this book. And it unfortunately describes the same old sin that got Israel tripped up in the first place. Mm -hmm. 
it says this in verse 1. Now, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites had not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, according to their abominations. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the officials have been the foremost in this unfaithfulness. Mm. And when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled out some of my hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down in consternation. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. The man of God is deeply grieved by this word here that comes from the princes of the land. And this word is saying what we mentioned all the way at the beginning of this podcast. The Israelites were beginning their syncretistic ways all over again. Mm. Now you may be sitting there scratching your head saying, I don't, I don't see that. When they got married to the wives of the peoples of the land, you know what those wives brought into that family relationship, Bo? Probably their religious beliefs. Correct. Mm. They brought in the worship of other gods. Let's just turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, because this is likely what would be going through Ezra's mind in accordance with a few other scriptures that we don't have time to mention. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 through 4 say this. It's a warning against the foreign nations. When the, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to possess it, and when Yahweh your God gives those peoples over before you and you strike them down, then you shall devote them to destruction. You shall cut no covenant with them and show them no favor. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me and they will serve other gods. Mm. Then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Now, that is not the first time that God said that, but he basically repeats that all throughout the Old Testament, and even before that chapter in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus 18 and elsewhere. And look at, in 1 Kings chapter 11, the example of Solomon, who took this to the extreme. 1 Kings chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not go along with them, nor shall they go along with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from, uh, or turn your heart after other gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives as princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. Now it happened at the time that Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart away from or turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh, his God, as the heart of David, his father, had been. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonites, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and did not follow Yahweh fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem. By the way, that's the Mount of Olives where Jesus is going to come back in the book of Revelation and where he ascended. And Solomon also built a high place for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their God. Now Yahweh was angry with Solomon because he turned, he was, his heart was turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice and, he had, and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not walk after other gods, but he did not keep what Yahweh had commanded. So, Yes, even the great Solomon with 700 wives broke this commandment 700 times. <laughs> and this is why Ezra, the priest and scribe, went to the lengths of tearing his garment, pulling out his hair from his head and his beard. And this is why he was just utterly gutted because mm. he knew what the word of God said about this. 
that the anger of the Lord would now be turned against the people of God again. And man, do we look at sin this way in our own life? Because all sin is enough sin to send us to hell for the rest of eternity. And yes, I know we've talked about sin being done against us on this podcast. And sometimes we even feel justified in, in feeling vengeful and wrathful and filled with malice towards those who sin against us. But listener, you have to understand that that is not of the Lord. And as we've said many times on this podcast, that we all need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to heal those deep wounds in our heart when we have been sinned against in those ways. But we also need to understand that we need the grace to take care of our own sin. Mm. And so Ezra, the man of God, is absolutely distraught by this news that he gets because this is the same old problem. And Bo, do you have any comments on that same old, same old issue popping up over and over again? I have so many comments that I could probably fill another podcast full of on that. But, um, you know, one thing that I, that I think about, um, when Jesus, um, is, is preaching to the people of Israel. I mean, cause, cause this story right here, the turning away from sin toward God and then the turning back towards sin, I mean, that is the pattern that you see God's people in yeah. from the time that, I mean, from Adam yeah. all the way to when Jesus is talking to them, um, you know, on the final week of his earthly ministry. I mean, he's telling them, turn away from your sin, turn toward mm-hmm. God. I mean, it's repentance, right? I mean, that's right. And so, you know, the, the thing that we need to, to take from this is that, hey, I've got to. I've got to look at my sin. I've got to. I've got to mm. mortify it. I've got to put it to death. I've got to. I've got to take all of these idols that I have in my life, get rid of them, and, and permanently get rid of them. Because this is the pattern that that's over and over again. You look throughout Scripture, you know the Old Testament especially. You see the same old pattern: turn back to God. The next generation turns back to sin or to mm-hmm. false idols mm-hmm. and false gods. And so, and we don't want to be like that. No. I mean, we want to glorify God. So. Amen. Amen. And so Ezra begins to confess, and he has this beautiful prayer that you guys can read on your own. I'm not going to read it just for time's sake, but it's found in verses 5 through 15. And he confesses. He falls on his knees and stretches out his hands to Yahweh. And he says he's ashamed even to lift up his face to the Lord. I mean, we see the posture of prayer there is one of humility. He's flattened, right? He, He won't even look up. He's full of just remorse over sin, a loathing over the sin of the people of Israel. And throughout his prayer, he doesn't separate himself from uh, this confession. He, he's included in that sinful act, mm-hmm. right? So that's a, that's a big takeaway for us. We, don't, we have to watch out for self-righteousness, right? Like praying for their sin and not my own, right? Right. Uh, and so Ezra doesn't make that mistake. And, and there's a lot we could say about this prayer. But, but essentially, the model that we see here is a, is, a, is a loathing of sin, being crushed in spirit, a, a humbling of oneself before the Lord in confession, and then making a, a resolute commitment to repent from that and not mm-hmm. to turn back to it. And so in chapter 10, Ezra comes out of his prayer. In verse 1, it says, Now while Ezra was praying and making confession and weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, and the people wept bitterly. I mean, Ezra is leading the people into this time of remorse and confession. And then it says that a, a leader of the people named Shechaniah stands up and says, We have been faithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now... There is hope for Israel in spite of this. Wow. You know, this man, Shechaniah, says this to Ezra, and and it's very likely that Shechaniah knew the Old Testament. Mm. It's very likely that that's where his hope was coming from. I don't know where else he would have possibly gotten it from, right? Because there's there's literally no reason for him to sit there and look at his surroundings and see a whole lot of hope. And we've, we've talked about the conditions of Jerusalem at this point. Yes, the temple's been rebuilt, but there's no wall protecting them. I mean, enemies could just come in and slaughter them mm-hmm. at any given moment. And yet he's able to have this hope in the midst of this situation. And so here's what he says to Ezra in verse three. So now let us cut a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. 
lowercase l. So he's talking about Ezra. According to the counsel of you, Ezra, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, that's a categorical statement referring likely to the priests and scribes and Levites, and let it be done according to the law. And he says this, this is amazing. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be strong and act. Mm. Notice who he's saying this to. He's saying this to Ezra. He's saying, get up, Ezra. Yes, you've been confessing and being loath and, and loathing this sin. Now it's time to do something. Get up. It's your responsibility to lead us. Be strong and act. And I think this is an extremely important thing to stop and, and end this podcast with because they're going to go and do this. And the rest of the book of Ezra is all about how they, how they do this act of repentance. And what I want to sit here and mention is we have the concept of the fear of man and the fear of God really being put on display here. Now, Ezra is a godly man. He's given us no reason to think that he is afraid of um, what man's going to think about him, right? Clearly, he's a faithful man. But even the most faithful of us still need encouragement against those types of things. Sure. Because now Ezra has to face the entire congregation of Israel <laughs> mm. and tell them what they don't want to hear. You got to divorce those women. You need to separate yourselves from amongst these people because of what God's word has said to us as a people group. We are not to intermingle. And you guys have broken the law of God. And so this man says, this is your responsibility, Ezra. We're going to be with you, but get up, be strong, and act. Mm. Any observations or comments on that? I mean, Mike, what, what I'm thinking about right now is just um, kind of the life that you, um, as an elder of our church and the rest of our elders, um, you know, and this is why we pray for you, um, because, you know, a good elder is definitely not going to win a popularity contest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to bear that burden of, of telling us, you know, rebuking us, uh, telling us that, hey, your, your ways, your, your way of life right now or something that you're doing is not honoring to God and you yeah. need to change that. And that's definitely not the most popular message that anybody wants to hear. But I mean, the gospel itself was not a popular message. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a heavy burden that all of, you know, church leaders have to bear. And, and I would just encourage all of your listeners just to, to pray for your church leaders, but also realize when they, they sit you down for these tough conversations, whether they're from the pulpit or one-on-one -on -one or whatever, that's that church leader being faithful and caring for your soul Amen. and telling you, hey, you know, you're not honoring God. You're not bringing glory to God with whatever it is right now, and, and you need to change. Amen. And that's precisely what Ezra is about to do. And he goes on to do that, like I said, in the rest of this book. So just by way of review, what do we see in this man, Ezra, here, who leads this second return uh, back from exile? Well, we see a man who, first and foremost, is a man of the word, right? Mm. And that has been a consistent theme throughout, so far, all of our podcasts in Nehemiah and, and these last two in Ezra. It's been the word of God that has been the foundation for these tremendously courageous people who God has raised up and equipped to lead the Israelites back into the promised land. So Ezra's a man of the word of God. He set his heart to study, he set his heart to do, and he set his heart to teach the law of God, right? And then he's a man of prayer, right? He prays this beautiful prayer that we didn't read, but I would encourage you to go back and read in chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. He prays this amazing prayer of confession and repentance that is a prayer that we all need to be praying on a regular basis. You know, that's how we're going to keep that, that first love that is so easy to lose. We're going to keep it when, we, when we're tender. And only way we can say tender is to truly be in the face of God daily in our prayer time and in the word of God. We need to, be, have, our, we need to have our hearts tenderized, basically. Amen. Because they get hard real fast and real easily. They do. Right? We need to have the, the, the light of the face of God shine upon our hearts so that it doesn't harden up and freeze, right? Right. And finally, Ezra's a man of conviction. He's a man of conviction. He did some very difficult stuff when he didn't necessarily have to, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the example that we read today was that, man, he could have had a military force that just chaperoned him from Babylon all the way to Israel, but he had a conviction in his heart that if he was walking around telling the king, no, God is going to provide for all those who seek 
him and he's going to do good to them. That was his conviction. He didn't want to go back on that conviction at all. And so, yes, he counted the cost. He, quote unquote, did the business plan, if you will, just to reference the example that we, that we had. And he realized, you know what? God's going to provide. We don't need to take the military chaperone. And so Ezra was a man who built his life on the word of God. He was a man of prayer and fasting, and he was a man of conviction. And all of those qualities were what we need to be emulating in our lives today. Any final words before we sign off, Bo? Uh, just as always, Mike, you know, when you really get down deep into God's word and really take a, a nice, close look at it, I mean, it convicts you. You know, yeah. you think of all the things that, that Ezra is doing right here and you think about, you know, and you compare to them to your own life, you know, um, is your repentance genuine? Is your, your hate for your sin genuine? Or are you paying it lip service? You know, I mean, we have to be, because God knows the inner workings of our heart. Yes, and that's where, that's where change has to happen because out of what flows out of the heart is what we do that's and right. what we say. That's right. Yeah. Well, we thank you all for listening to another episode of the Nehemiah Project Podcast. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nehemiah Project Podcast. For more resources about addiction recovery, suicide prevention, and overcoming other life-controlling issues, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and visit our website, tnproject.org. If you or someone you love is struggling, don't hesitate to reach out to us by calling 985-205-3022.